that behaviour of not sharing information for fear of someone else coming up with something is is not great. One of the things I hate when people say is, uh-huh. what's in it for me? Yeah, well, for sure. Well, not everything in life has to be in it for you. If you invest consistently over alternative assets through the cycle, the asset classes will outperform listed markets. The single biggest thing I think that we look for, in addition to all those things we've talked about, is operational expertise, real specialists. We are not interested in what we call alternatives in dress-up. What's the biggest mistake people make when it comes to building wealth and why? Private markets investments are investors can find some real value. I find the best way to learn is learn from someone who's done it before and given it a go. Hi, I'm Travis Miller, host of Grow Your Wealth podcast. Thanks for joining me here today. On these podcast sessions, we're going to talk through how uh, certain investors have navigated the bumpy road of investing, whether it be through business or investments in general. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to another insightful episode of Grow Your Wealth. I'm your host, Travis Miller, and today we have the privilege of delving into the remarkable career journey of Natasha Nankervell, a prominent figure in the world of finance and alternative investments. Natasha Nankervell is a partner and co-founder of Global Alternative Funds. GAF provides high net worth, family office, and small institutional investors with access to the world's leading alternative asset managers. But Natasha's journey doesn't begin here. Prior to her entrepreneurial endeavours, Natasha held the prestigious position of Managing Director and Global Partner at the Carlyle Group from 2011 to 2018. During her time at the Carlyle Group, Natasha played a pivotal role in fostering relationships with institutional and high net worth investors across Australia and New Zealand. Her expertise extended to portfolio development and investment opportunities spanning a wide array of alternative asset classes, including private equity, private debt, infrastructure and energy and real estate. Natasha's journey in the world of finance is a testament to her passion and commitment. She's also held senior positions at renowned institutions such as Macquarie Group, Challenger Financial Services, Merrill Lynch and Bankers Trust. Beyond her impressive career, Natasha is deeply engaged in the community. She currently serves as a governor at the Board of Trustees and Investment Committee member of the Centenary Institute. To top it all off, Natasha's academic foundation is as solid as her professional achievements. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Pure and Applied Mathematics from the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Join us as we explore Natasha's career and investment journey. We gain insights from a wealth of experience and wisdom. Stay tuned for an engaging and informative conversation. Thanks, Natasha, for joining us here today. To to kick it off, uh, let's start at the beginning. Are you able to give us, please, just a bit of a, a potted summary of who you are? Sure, and thanks for that very generous um, introduction, Travis. Uh, much appreciated. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm quite flattered, but and and really uh, appreciate people's time today as well. So thanks so much for having me. Uh, look, I am, uh, I guess, the in a in a nutshell. I don't know how do you summarise fifty two years, but in a nutshell, the daughter of uh, a woman called Sonia. My mum was a Ukrainian post war immigrant, um, and I am, and she was. Uh, hugely capable. She was an entrepreneur uh, as well. She built what was a very significant infrastructure planning business over the course of her life. Uh, And I'm, I guess, the child of my mother, Sonia, who was entrepreneurial and uh, very capable, and my father, who was also an entrepreneur. He was actually a pioneer in in vitro fertilisation and brought it to Australia in the 70s and early 80s. 
So I come and and whilst he was a doctor and she was an infrastructure planner, uh, they were entrepreneurs by nature. And um, so I started my career, really, I studied mathematics uh, at university, as you noted. Uh, I am the mother of two fabulous daughters who are now adults. Uh, That's going very swiftly. And I've had the pleasure of a fantastic now 34-year career in investment banking, uh, working for some really wonderful people and institutions around the world. That's brilliant. That's a good start. I mean, watching uh, watching your business grow the last number of years has been amazing, and it's a testament to your, um, you know, to to your networks and effort you're putting into that business. Now, could you walk us through your career journey and share two or three pivotal moments that have led you to where you are today? Sure. Uh, you know, I don't. I'm not sure this is pivotal. The first thing, but I think the the most pivotal maybe was the birth to. Um, my mother, who, as I mentioned, was an entrepreneur and a Ukrainian post-war immigrant. And uh, as many people would know, when you start from nothing and you have to build your entire, uh, not only your family's wealth, but make sure that they're never in a position uh, as they were when they first arrived to the country. I think that was really pivotal because what I saw my parents do, both my mother and my father, but particularly my mother in an industry that was not populated by women. I mean, men, most industries weren't at that point, I guess, in the 60s and 70s. But uh, she was really pivotal in my whole life because what she did was she led by example. She worked hard. She had extraordinary integrity. She put her clients at the centre of her professional career uh, and she was just a a good, kind human as well. She was respectful to all people. So I think the most pivotal thing was certainly my parents and particularly my mum. But interestingly, the other two people that I would note, uh, because I think it is people that are the most pivotal pivotal rather than particular experiences, at least for me. Uh, The second person was a woman by the name of Gillian Broadbent, who was my first sort of very um, serious job. Uh, She was responsible for Bankers Trust Australia, the sales and trading business, and I worked for Gillian. And and then the next person that was really pivotal in terms of my career and development came much later in my career, but it was it was a gentleman by the name of David Rubenstein who was the founder of the Carlisle Group. And mm-hmm. notably, my mother, Gillian and David, there was one very clear vein that ran all through those three people, and that was that they were people who were always behaved with integrity, who always put their clients at the centre of their businesses, and also who had an eye on things that weren't just... Uh, immediate benefit to themselves or to their business, but an eye on a and a lens on a bigger picture in the world uh, that they were very focused on contributing to. And if I can kind of go on a tangent already, if you don't mind, I heard a quote, uh, a, a friend of my mum's actually, Victoria Rubinson, mentioned it the other day, and it was a quote from Macbeth. And, and the quote says, it's a longer quote, but in a nutshell, it talks about life. And it says, it is a t- tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And I think these those three people I mentioned were the exact opposite of that. You know, um, they, of course, had their own careers and, and uh, contributed very significantly to the business world. But in addition to that, uh, their contribution was the opposite to signifying nothing and they contributed. And I think... I've tried, you know, and perhaps to a lesser extent, I've tried to behave in the same way as those through three um, pivotal people have been in my life is trying to contribute more broadly than just to the bottom line of your own interest or your business that you're running. 
Yeah, that's very, that's good to hear. I mean, it sounds like very three amazing people and mm. you know, quite an influence on your life. I mean, if you think about those three people in your, your career, you know, is there um, any traits, um, you know, personality types, you've mentioned integrity, that younger people, if they're trying to replicate those types of personalities, what kind of things, you know, how would they behave? What sort of things would they do to, you know, learn more and, you know, follow in maybe some footsteps? Yeah, I, th- I think integrity is is key and, and you don't get a second go at that, do you, in life? Yeah. I mean, you don't get a second go at many things in life, but... Uh, and trusting your judgment. And I think at a very early age, we know in life what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, from simple things like, you know, when you when you want to go to a party and someone else has invited you to something like, and you say, oh, I've already said yes to that, but I really want to go that, so I'm going to say no to that. You know, very basic things that you learn as a child or not lying and not stealing. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're the, the sort of most core of character traits. But um, maintaining that integrity, understanding your moral compass, trusting your judgment on how people behave, stepping away from people who don't behave in a way that is consistent with your grain and then cherishing the relationships you have with the people whose grain is consistent with yours is really important. I think all of those people worked so hard and, and I think there is no shortcut to working hard. And then I think that, again, if you have a client-focused business and at the end of the day, all businesses are client-focused in one way or another, but if you put your clients at the centre of that behaviour, then the rest all follows. And I think yeah. all of that is has been, um, you know, demonstrated by those people. Certainly. For sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think in your your role, you know, people are entrusting their money with you, and uh, the integrity you've got to display in running a funds management business is critical. If you don't have the trust of your investors, mm-hmm. you're not going to build a business. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you're clearly uh, demonstrating those characteristics in your uh, in, in in building the business. Yeah, and um, people deal with people they trust and people they like, and sure. I trust at a personal level, but also trusted deliver what is what they've promised is really important. For sure. And in that alternative asset private market space, I just think it's even more important because it's, you know, it's less transparent, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's less liquid. Um, so you've really got to trust who you're working with um, because it's a totally different environment to say the listed markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so I totally, totally agree with you. Now, if we go into sort of a little bit more of your personal story around investing, can you share your story of money and investments? You know, what have you invested your time in, energy and money in over the years and, and why and how has this led you to where you are today? And this is more than just purely investing, but it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. But there's other types of things that are rewarding that you apply your, you know, your energy and money towards. Yeah, sure. So I, I think, you know, um, I've been very fortunate to have spent my life uh, in, in the finance and investing ecosystem. And so... You know, I've had the benefit of almost by osmosis and time learning about particular areas. I think the most important thing is to understand what you're investing in. Now, people to different degrees have different abilities to do that because it may not be their area of expertise. They might be a doctor or they might be a school teacher or they might be a, you know, a uh, social worker, but as best you can, I think trying to equip with yourself with knowledge and information of what you're looking at. And if you can't understand it yourself, I think seeking advice from others sure. that know that space is really, really critical. For sure. Um, so, you know, 
we invest, so Global Alternative Funds, the business was set up specifically uh, because we couldn't get access to uh, what we saw were the best alternative asset managers in the world through the traditional channels. Yep. Um, and so we built what we couldn't deliver. Now, um, I, I would say the thing that we are very conscious of is we certainly do not have the mortgage over all good ideas and we certainly don't know everything. Even though, you know, my brother runs a business, he was a um, direct investor and was a senior deal guy for Goldman Sachs uh, in Europe running their direct infrastructure investing business. He knows more about infrastructure than anyone, you know, possibly would want to know about infrastructure yeah. investing. And yet, give, even though we've spent 20, 30 years, you know, each in the space, we spend a lot of time trying to learn still from others. So, um, you know, I think that's real. We spend a lot of time when you say, what do you spend your time doing? We spend a lot of time listening and try to understand what we're investing in. And then, you know, I mentioned that we came from Ukrainian roots. Um, Kurt Cobain said, just because you're neurotic doesn't mean they're not after you. As yeah. it turned out for the Ukrainians, that was <laughs> very appropriate. But because perhaps uh, of that background, we spend a lot of time thinking about what could go wrong with this investment. Sure. Because the spoiler alert, I think, for people listening, hopefully, and, and certainly we know this, is no one turns up to your office or to your, you know, your meeting with a pitch book that says, we're rubbish, give us your yeah. capital. Yeah, for Everyone sure. Everyone looks good in the presentation. And so the, the key, of course, is understanding and diligencing what they tell you but then trying to understand what they don't tell you. And, and that needs good advice if you can't work that out yourself. Hey, if you're enjoying this, please subscribe on whatever platform you're using. It helps us build a community. We want to educate investors and this is what it's all about. You know, it's something I'm passionate about and I partner is just education in general in an alternative asset space. And this podcast is ultimately about trying to educate investors, but you're, you're spot on in that. You know, you can you need to educate yourself. You need to understand what you're investing in. You need to read the documentation. But there's a point when you, you may need to trust an advisor, mm -hmm. trust the fund manager, um, take into account they're doing a lot of work in the background. And I know when I've previously you know listened to you present and spoken to you, the amount of work you do in the background, understanding what is best of breed. You know, mm -hmm. best of breed is not the best marketer of a product. Best of breed is when you do some analysis on say for infrastructure. As you've mentioned previously, you may need to do research on 30 fund managers to find what is the top three. And then from the top three, what is the number one that you may take to your investors? So, you know, I totally understand that time and effort that, that you'd be putting in, in in the background. Good to hear. Now, on to Gath, um, sort of more specific on what you're up to these days. You know, where did the idea for Gath come from? You know, who was your first investor? Where did the capital come from? And who supported you along the way? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we semi-joke that GAF is going exactly to the business plan we never had. <laughs> yeah. And the reason we say that is because I actually, um, I, I left the Carlisle Group and my departure was precipitated by the death of my mother and notably my brother left Goldman Sachs. He was a lifer of Goldman. He joined there just after he graduated from university and was there for the best part of two decades. We left those respective firms uh, after the passing of our mum. And uh, we were, as I noted, um, fortunate enough over our careers to develop our significant for us pools of capital. But then my mother, who died, you know, before she was 70, had a liquidity event on the business that she built up over her, her life. 
And Peter and I really saw ourselves as trustees and custodians of that capital. And our mum was very focused on ensuring that our family would never be in the position that she and her parents were in when they came out in 1949. And so uh, we both left our respective firms. My brother moved to Portland, Oregon. Uh, He now lives there. Uh, I had some time off. And then we looked at our capital and we had been the beneficiaries at Carlisle and Goldman and previous firms of being able to invest with the firms that we worked for. And that is is great if you work for the firms that you work for. Mm. But when we left, I literally rang Pete and said, hey, what do, what do normal people do when you can't invest with Carlisle funds as a person mm. or Goldman? And he said, I don't know. So I went to the private banks and look, the, the private banks we went to and um, private wealth management firms in Australia, they have good offerings, but for us, they didn't have what we needed exactly. And if you can't find it, then you build it. And the good news, I was rapidly approaching 50, and the good news about turning 50 is the people that I had started my career with, you know, 25, 30 years ago were now running a number of these really outstanding alternative managers. And I had either priced risk with them a long time ago as a mathematician in derivatives, or I'd done capital structuring with them at Merrill, or I'd advise them when I was at Macquarie and raised equity for them when I was at Carlisle. So I knew these people well, and I went around and I said, look, if I aggregate capital from people like me who understand mm. the difference between good and outstanding managers and we aggregate the capital and we become one investor to meet all of your regulatory requirements, would you take our capital? And the answer was a clear yes because no one ever says, oh, we've got too much capital, stop giving us money. Uh, yeah. That's not the way that game works. And so it, it started and I literally rang family and friends and said, hey, this is an idea what do you think? Mm. And many of those people I called were actually people who I'd worked for over my career or worked with, who knew what my skill set was, but also understood the value of manager selection. Because people often ask me, Travis, what, what is, what is the, if you had to say one thing, what is the most important thing? And I said, if I had to say three things, it's manager selection, manager selection, manager selection. Very true. Yeah. And so being able to access those managers that normally you would have to write or you still have to write, you know, 20, 30, 50 million US dollars to, which we can't do every time. If you want to build a portfolio, that's not that's not an, that's not a solution. So you have to be large. You have to have relationships because usually these managers are um, oversubscribed. And so you have to have a way in. And that was really the genesis of GAF. So we wrote our first check. It was kind of 10 million US or something. And we found a manager that we liked and we invested. And then actually the way it ended up GAF was one of those people rang me three weeks later and said, that was great. What are we doing next? Mm-hmm. I went right. and said, oh, there's a next. Who knew? Yeah. And so here we are um, four years down a path with a really an extraordinary uh, support base of, you know, 280 high net worth and family offices and small instos and charities and uh, supporting us and, you know, over a billion dollars of commitments with is mildly interesting, but not particularly relevant, except for the fact that we have really are very grateful for the support of uh, what we call co-investors, because we, of course, lead with our own capital every time first. Gotcha. It's yeah. amazing to hear your, your first fund in the early days, the the, the family and friends, ex-colleagues, mm-hmm. you know, to help you, you know, get, your, get the business off and running. And so it's sort of one of those things that as you go through your career, make sure you're a good person, because <laughs> ultimately they could be your investors one day. So yeah. Yeah, chances are if you weren't a great person 20 years ago, you're probably not going to be a great person tomorrow. But anyway, 
That's exactly right. Now, what what did you do differently? Uh, and, you know, why do you do what you do? And, and some of these questions you'll find overlap, but it's still interesting to dig a bit deeper. Yeah. I mean, I, what, I think the the biggest thing that we do differently is we lead with our own capital every time. Great. Yep. And so we're not an asset under management accumulator. Our fees, you know, half to a third of what our, what I call loose competitors charge. But we do that because the business was set up to invest our own family's capital. And when that is your driver, you're able to offer a fee sort of um, amount that is different to others but it's not just oh well we charge cheap fees that's not it the point is is we can create more value for our family by investing well and leading these investments than we do necessarily by clipping the ticket for something that we don't think we actually need to clip the ticket for so I think that's that's the biggest thing the other thing is as I said earlier we spend a lot of time and particularly Peter who runs our manager selection process um, on a day-to-day basis, although we, we everything we do, we do together and we do not invest in anything unless we both want to do it. And, in fact, the team wants to do it now. But we spend a lot of time thinking about what could go wrong. So we meet around 500, 550 managers a year via Zoom across the whole team, and then we meet 100 in person, usually about half in North America and half in Europe. But the, every... Every meeting, there is an overtone of what could go wrong with this. What's the downside? Because, as I said, the intention is to ensure that there is never a depletion of capital. There's always growth of capital, whether it's income or capital gain. Gotcha. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you want to learn more about alternative assets, there's a book here you can read, How You Grow Your Wealth with Alternative Assets. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned your own capital. I mean, speaking to all of the good investors, all the good fund managers, the alignment of interest and actually putting their own capital at risk, you know, putting their money where their mouth is, is critical. And it's good to hear that's sort of how you go about business, as, as, I, as I already knew, but it's good to, uh, good to reiterate. Yeah. Now, what was the biggest shift you made in your career that brought you to where you are today? Oh, well, I, I'm going to, um, maybe not my career, but I think what I was studying, what I was studying. Uh, and that was, I started my, I started a degree in chemical engineering. Um, yeah okay, there you go uh, and I did six weeks of that and I decided that a lab is not where I wanted to be uh, so I went and transferred to mathematics uh, to science with a pure and applied as you noted at the beginning uh, degree in mathematics and I think that was really uh, the biggest shift because you know clearly had I gone into science or you know the, the the thing that I wish I'd always done but you know, either didn't work hard enough or maybe just wasn't smart enough was medicine. Uh, but but I think if I hadn't done that, I, I, that wouldn't have happened. And and then I think the other thing that was really transformative or a big shift in my career was, you know, I was uh, 28 years of age uh, and I had a tiny Sophie, my second daughter, was just newborn and I had a two-year-old as well and my then husband and I moved to London. Uh, and I remember at the time people saying, how on earth, and I, and I was moving to London to look after a business uh, that spanned Europe for Merrill Lynch, and people said, how on earth are you going to do that with a two-year-old and a newborn and no familiar, familiar family support there? And um, uh, it was hard, but I think that was really, that was that was a step change for the career. Yeah. How did you go in the maths degree? Were you a, a natural at maths? Because a lot I, of people well, would read that degree and they'd be scared. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, here it goes out into the ether forever. You know, they say that podcasts and stuff on the internet has a soul that never dies. So here it is. How did I go at university? I, I enjoyed university. Yeah. Um, I was very fortunate that I studied uh, subjects that I loved and that came very naturally to me. Maths was my strong suit and as was chemistry actually at school. And so uh, I, I, I spent a lot of time um, having a good time at university, spending time at the beach. Uh, yeah. I, but I, of course, um, got through and did, did well. And in fact, my first job was as a mathematician in a wow. dealing room pricing derivatives uh, and pricing okay. risk. So, uh, yeah. yeah. It's funny, interesting as you go through your career, it's the social side of it, the networks you build, just as important as the, you know, the academic and doing your job. Yeah, and I call them relationships and I, I guess I differentiate between networks. I think that mm. the word networks to me always is kind of a little bit of premeditated, not duplicitous because it's not that evil, but... Uh, networks always feels like, oh, you know, there's an intention of that. Yeah, I think sure. relationships are certainly things that you look back on. And, you know, to this day, uh, you know, not that this is particularly relevant perhaps for this podcast, but my best friends and my mates that I met in kindergarten, my eight girlfriends, my, oh. closest, my friends from kindy and the people that I hold closest to me, the most important thing to my career in my career to me is the relationships that I've made, everything else has followed. Yeah, it's for you. I mean, when you think about networks, you think about those lunches that you perfectly turn up with and exchange cards. But yeah, it's your mates and contacts you meet, you know, after work and in the workplace that just subtly, subtly they become your friends. Yeah. Very good. Now, you know, what's worked and what hasn't, you know, bumps in the road, what have been the learnings? Uh, I think what has worked and it, isn't always seen, particularly in investment banking, is an openness to share knowledge and ideas because there is a natural kind of behavioural pattern you see in some industries and perhaps, you know, yeah. um, certainly not across all investment banking, but the people can be very um, frightened of oh, this is my idea and and you know the bonus structure and yeah. the remuneration process in investment banking encourages that mm. but not all firms have that culture so yeah. i think what certainly works is a culture where you share information and knowledge because that becomes a two-way street and you know you see it in science and medical research you look at what happened with the world when COVID hit sure they had yep. never had an rna vaccine and in six months, the world came together and we solved it. And so I think that behaviour of mm. um, not sharing information for fear of someone else coming up with something is, uh, is not great. So I think the thing that works is certainly sharing information and knowledge, yeah. and that plays out well in the long run. We talked about relationships, help each other, and I think people know that if you do the right thing, that comes back in spades. And you don't do, you know, one of the things I hate when people say is uh -huh. what's in it for me. Yeah, Well, for sure. not, not everything in life has to be in it for you. Yeah. Right? And I think that's important. And, you know, to your point, people don't change. So I think also mm -hmm. trusting your judgment on people. Um, but what has worked is deep, deep diligence. And... Uh, we've seen that in the investments we have made over the last four years. You know, in many mar many markets have been like this over the last four years, and let's put it down to being lucky rather than smart. That diligence has paid off for us. For sure, there's no there's no shortcut for hard work, and yeah. if that means that we spend years 
deciding on who the right manager is in a thesis or we say no to people and it's going to be hard conversation saying, I'm sorry, we've taken a lot of your time, but we haven't got comfortable with that risk, then so be it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I like your thinking. It's a little bit like thinking like a scientist, right? You may as well share and between the group you come up with sort of better solutions, better mm-hmm. ideas. The old knowledge is power and keeping it to yourself. You know, it's a culture destroyer in a way. Culture destroyer and it's driven by deep insecurity. Yeah, for sure. Lack of confidence. Totally agree. It's very, very pertinent. Uh, and now getting back to investing, personal. I mean, the podcast is, you know, how do you grow your wealth? But it's, you know, it's a personal story and it's also, you know, should be educational for our listeners. What has been your best and worst investment and what did you learn from them? Interestingly, the best and the worst investment is the same. Gotcha. And that and, and that was while we were at GAF. Uh and the worst investment, and I, I, I pause when I say that because it really wasn't a worse investment, but what it is a testament is to that manager selection process, is in October 2019, we made an investment, a co-investment to the asset level into an airport. Yeah, gotcha. I remember that one. Europe. Very unique. Yep. And it was fantastic because it's an amazing asset with enormous upside, a great manager, and you thought, and, you know, what could go wrong? COVID, (laughs) spoiler alert, now that was for a minute I remember waking up and you know talking to one of our investors and people saying it's just China and this investor said who's very insightful and you know we have the privilege to deal with many of our investors are so even though they don't come from the domain expertise of finance and investing are so bright they have created their own wealth they've created their own businesses and hence why they're investing with us because they have that capital but one of them said to me, I think this is going to be much worse than China. Peter was also saying, oh, this is the end of the world. What's right. going to... But the, the the thing that put us in good stead is that we had done our diligence on the manager and the manager was exemplary. So the way they handled that asset when COVID hit, the way they negotiated with the regulator, the way they negotiated with getting furloughing in place for their staff, the way they refinanced so they had liquidity available, the way so that they didn't have to call on extra capital from equity investors, the way they, you know, put in place capital expenditure programs while the airport was shut down to make the airport better for when it rebounded. All that was why it ended up being and now is an outstanding investment. And so... If, because we invest in alternative assets, which are longer duration assets, you know, I'm I'm not smart enough to pick the listed equity market. I, I, I don't understand that, right? So we don't invest in the listed markets. But what we do understand is alternatives. And, and as I said earlier, the most critical thing is manager selection because assets, not all assets will go well, even because of, you know, you can diligence that manager and that asset, but extraneous factors meant that that asset was under pressure. And yet if you have the right manager managing that asset, they 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 bolster the foundations of it. And then when the asset, when the market recovers, it it, it, it is outstanding. So the best and the worst was in fact the same. That's pretty, I actually, I remember that asset and I remember the manager. What I thought at the time was amazing is that an Aussie investors, could get access to a small part of a UK airport. Yeah. And so the provision of access that you gave to investors, I think, was uh, very unique. Thank you. Uh, it's good to hear that the asset's going well. Yeah, um, I'm really pleased. 
Hey, if you're enjoying this, please leave a review. It's really important to us. We're trying to build momentum around education and better reviews will get more people coming and listening. Now, a little bit philosophical now, um, getting towards the end of our chat. What legacy are you living and leaving? Legacy. It's, it's such a it's such a small world, word, but such yeah. a big kind of thing to cover, isn't it? I think. Yeah, I don't want to say my children my legacy because that's so yeah. presumptuous, isn't it? It's like grandiose. That's <laughs> they're my legacy, but yeah. they're certainly the thing that will outlive me, uh, and hopefully, they can do great things. I remember my uh, parents used to say to me, "We expect you to work hard." <laughs> we expect you to do the right thing and we expect you to contribute. And so, you know, I hope that my children uh, have good, healthy lives and they then become contributing people, which I, you know, they're so far so good, touch wood. Yeah. Um, the legacy I hope for GAF is that our co-investors and our clients are happy uh, with the work that we do to provide them the opportunities and that becomes a business that is valuable to people more broadly than ourselves. So that's what I hope for that. And then the most, you know, the thing that I find, I, as you noted at the beginning of the our chat, was that I sit on the uh, board of um, the Centenary Institute, which is a medical research institute that does extraordinary work in cardiovascular, uh, cancer, lung disease and longevity and the scientists there the best part of every board meeting is when the scientists come in and talk to us about the work they're doing it's mind-blowing you feel you almost feel you know inept and hopeless as a finance professional when you look at the work they do Uh, and we're just about to start actually a fellowship to support one of the um, mid-career scientists at centenary who's just unbelievably fantastic and she's doing a lot of work in melanoma which of, of course uh, is Australia's cancer and some of the um, findings and the research she's been doing has uh, will be very significant I expect in coming months and years uh, to battle that disease so hopefully uh, we'll have a series of fellowships that we will set up for scientific research which is so critical because when you look at us as a nation of course we have tourism we have resources and metals mining minerals uh, but we also have amazing brains. So we are very much supporters of that at GAF and significant part of our business capital will be and growth will go into that those fields. It's yeah. good to hear. I hear the uh, the passion you talk about your mother. I'm sure your uh, children will have the same passion about you one day. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I'm pretty proud of them. They're, they're pretty amazing. Uh, but I guess all parents think that, don't they? So. No, it's, it's right. great to hear. Now, on to back to investments. Uh, what do you believe are the keys to successful investment and why? And I think you've you've mentioned a bit of this around the the due diligence, you know, manager selections. So there's a little bit of overlap, but if you wanted to sort of add anything further on that one. I think the other thing is consistent investment. That's, when you look at the data, we're very data-driven. When you look at the data, the undeniable fact is if you invest consistently through vintages mm. across alternative asset classes, and I'm going to quickly say what they are. That is private credit, private equity, infrastructure, real estate, growth equity, and venture capital. So they're your traditional alternative asset classes. If you invest consistently over alternative assets through the cycle, the asset classes will outperform listed markets. That's historical data. Do we expect that to continue? Well, there's no reason to think that won't be the case, but I think consistent 
sensible investing. People who try to time markets, I, I think that's a fool's paradise. Yeah. Um, so I think that diligence, the manager selection, finding managers who have been around and aren't, you know, sometimes we're looking at distressed credit managers when COVID hit and you'd meet these managers and they say, oh, we're just distressed, we're a distressed credit manager or now you're saying greenwashing. Oh, we're a, we're a, um, uh, alternative and es- alternative energy investor. It's like I'm pretty sure you're an oil and gas banker six years <laughs> ago. Weird. Uh, so you know people who have been doing what they've been doing for a long time with an outstanding track record and then investing consistently. Gotcha. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, and now, what qualities and character traits separate great investors from the rest? I think I almost integrity, but of course. Um, the single biggest thing I think that we look for, in addition to all those things we've talked about, yep. is operational expertise. Mm, for sure, yeah. Real specialists. We are not interested in what we call alternatives in dress-up, which is just like a, a kind of index of alternatives. That's not the answer for us. We want to outperform. We don't want to be at the benchmark. So mm. I think uh, that, so operation and then, operational expertise. So whether they're a specialist in special situations, distress for control, private equity, or if it's a fund that's, you know, if they're investing in in a a sector, for example, healthcare, financial services, industrials, that they have a really deep bench and and also managers that have some sort of moat around their business that provides an edge for them to outperform against their loose peers. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting on investing. It's the it's always those you know uh, fund managers that know what they're good at, mm-hmm. and that's what they focus on, and they know what they're not good at, and they just leave that alone. Yeah, so I can totally understand. Now we're getting towards the end. We're gonna have a few quick fire questions. You know, mm-hmm. sort of short answers, one word. Yeah, uh, can be multiple words, but uh, you know, what was your first job? And you, this is back uh, as young as you need to be. Uh, I was a waitress at the Old Vienna Cafe in the Queen Victoria building. That's brilliant. Year 11, year 9. Year 9? Year 11. No, year 11. It was definitely year 11. Uh, What's a piece of advice for your younger self? Trust your judgment, take opportunities, work hard, and do each job well before you go to the next one. Make sure you do you, you complete each job to the best of your ability. You've contributed significantly, and then take every every step from there on should be accretive or additive to your knowledge base. Makes sense. Leave a legacy. What's the most important skill for building wealth, and why? Don't waste money on things and people that don't matter. Perfect. What's the most important habit for building wealth, and why? Read, listen, and learn. Perfect. That sounds good. What is your definition of sustainable success? How are you achieving it? How can others? Build a capital base so that at some point in your life, you have an income stream that you can live off so you don't deplete the capital. Totally agree. That's brilliant. When you're not working, how do you like to spend your time? With my family. Perfect. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake people make when it comes to building wealth and why? Uh, they think that everything that glitters is gold. There is a very oh. strong, undeniable correlation between risk and return. Totally and risk adjusted returns are a real thing. And just because something has an asset class name, that sounds like something else. 
make sure you understand the underlying risks because we say all risks are equal, some are more yep. equal than others. That's so true. You see so many uh, investments offered out there that's amazing marketing, great big numbers. You got to get under the hood. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what's, what's new and next for you? Uh, I think more of what we are doing, uh, working with the Centenary Institute to set up some scientific fellowships yeah. And I, I, that's enough. Yeah, <laughs> that's that, enough. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, really appreciate your time today and the chat. Um, you know, for any of our uh, listeners that want more information, um, you know, allocating to alternative asset classes can deliver significant benefits to an investment portfolio. For those in the audience who have really resonated with Natasha's message, you can find out more about GAF at globalalternativefunds.com. Um, but as I said, Natasha, really appreciated the chat and I've been so impressed with how you've built your business and continue to build the business and just the access for investors to interesting best of breed managers is, um, you know, your investors are very lucky to get that access. So thanks. Thanks for your time. Well, Travis, thanks for your time. And, and uh, just for the avoidance of doubt, you know, I see iPartners or iPlatform is really as a cousin uh, company to GAF and I know that we were we weren't embryonic but we were certainly early in our lives when our paths crossed and uh, for that we are also grateful for that partnership so I, I commend you also on the growth of, of iPartners and our platforms well done to you and the team you're outstanding thanks very much take good care thank you all right guys bye-bye hey if you're enjoying this please leave a review it's really important to us we're trying to build momentum around education and better reviews will get more people coming and listening